Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is brought to you by Videoblocks. Videoblocks is a members-only website offering a one-stop shop for affordable stock footage, motion backgrounds, and After Effects templates. Podcast listeners can get access to an unlimited library and global marketplace for only $99 by visiting videoblocks.com ASC. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. My name is Steve McFarlane, and I'm a contributing writer for magazines like Slant, Cinemascope, and Bomb. In this episode, I'm going to be speaking with cinematographer David Mullen, ASC, about his collaboration with director Anna Biller on The Love Witch. I've been lightly obsessed with Biller's work ever since I saw her 2007 feature debut, Viva, and the momentous festival success of The Love Witch has been a really welcome surprise this year. I had the pleasure of conducting an interview with Biller for Filmmaker Magazine last summer, where I tried to really get at the heart of the movie's influences and tastes. It's reductive, but necessary, to say that The Love Witch adopts a sensibility that speaks to a bygone era, so... I like to think of this interview with Mullen as a continuation of that conversation and also about the noble endeavor to shoot a wide canvas, classic Hollywood style film on 35mm in 2016. At the risk of being redundant, we were talking a little bit about this before the microphones went on, but can you tell me a little bit about those early days when you first met Anna, when you were both at CalArts, and what your collaboration was like then, how you've kept in touch over the years. I know you also shot The Hypnotist. Yeah, I was a graduate student at CalArts from 88 to 91, and I think Anna started at CalArts in 90 as an undergraduate student. So I was uh, older than her and leaving, I think we overlapped by a year. Uh, and we met while we were students, but I kept coming back to CalArts to uh, occasionally uh, lecture, do a teaching thing. and. Uh, still help on my friend's films who were still at CalArts. And so sometime, I think about two years after I graduated from CalArts, she asked me to shoot The Hypnotist uh, that with her and uh, Jared, her producer on The Love Witch. And so that was the first time I'd actually worked with Anna, but we had been talking over the years. And she knew I had an interest in older movies. Uh, I'm not sure when we first talked about movies, but. Um, once we started talking, it was very clear that we both loved Technicolor films, um, Michael Powell, Technicolor films in particular. Uh, she sent me some very obscure three-strip Technicolor films that she had found uh, to look at. There was a beautiful one about uh, the world of fashion that was made in the late 30s, early three-strip film. Um, that's how I got involved in The Hypnotist. And my goal on The Hypnotist at the time was just to make it feel like uh, three-strip Technicolor uh, 40s film. And I was, I've been a fan of film history and film technology history for years, so I'd studied the different eras of film. Um, there's a very good book called uh, Film Style and Technology by Barry Salt. It's a British book where he goes decade by decade about which equipment was available to filmmakers and how that affected the style of the films of each decade. So I'm very clear on the difference between 40s color films versus 50s color films, for example, in terms of what tools they had, which then affected the looks of those films, the sort of depth of field they had, the color saturation, and also just the aesthetic attitudes at the time. So 
it was great to work with Anand and get into this kind of minutia about you know the difference between a, a 40s color film versus a 50s versus a 60s uh, film when we even when we did the hypnotist. But the hypnotist is art directed and designed to look like an older period. It's not the period that uh, the Love Witch is in. Um, the hypnotist is definitely more like a 30s, 40s uh, art deco kind of design. Then after the hypnotist, we kept in touch. Um, I saw her film Viva uh, that she made in 2006 or seven. And we've been talking ever since, uh, running into each other. But I haven't worked with her since uh, 1994, I think. And then as now, the hypnotist have this kind of totality of production value that is not always the case, let's say, with a student film. And I know it was a thesis, but... Yeah, the, uh, they're very similar in, in ways. Obviously, the budget was much lower on The Hypnotist. We shot in 16 millimeter, and she built the sets. Uh, I only shot the, the soundstage portion of The Hypnotist. The location stuff was shot by someone else. I wasn't available uh, to do that portion. And we had the same challenges on The Love Witch because we shot two weeks maybe on stages and then had to finish the rest of the film on locations. Um, and there's always a difficulty in lighting those two different worlds uh, to look like each other and for Anna to production design a real place versus build it from scratch. Uh, I think Anna would probably prefer to build everything, but it was just a matter of time and budget. So. Uh, otherwise, the uh, hypnotist was a much smaller crew too. It was just me and one other person doing all the lighting. Um, I would get there in the morning with a ladder and me and a friend of mine uh, would sit there and hang lights and aim them and then I'd climb down and, and load the camera and uh, I had one assistant. So it was a very s small, intimate production. Not that uh, The Love Witch was much bigger, but it was, I had a normal size. A low-budget crew on Love Witch. And this took longer, I'm imagining, than a regular low-budget feature shoot, right? We had an extended schedule uh, on the Love Witch because our schedule generally was that Anna would dress the sets the uh, Monday of the week while I was pre-lighting them, and then we'd shoot Tuesday through Thursday, let's say, and then she would wrap that set on Friday, and then on Monday the whole thing would start over again. We'd dress and pre-light shoot in the middle of the week and then wrap at the end of the week. So that extended our schedule uh, by two days every week uh, to accommodate that. So I don't know what the total number of shooting days were, but it was in the 20s where most low-budget films would probably only get 18 to 21 days. We probably were more like 27 days. If you can talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of your collaboration, which is to say she obviously has a very specific way she wants things to look. Are you in a more facilitative role when it comes to finding that VistaVision kind of 60s look, or is it more like you two sort of schemed it together and figured out what would and wouldn't be feasible? Anna showed me a lot of movies. Uh, she gave me a big stack of DVDs to watch. And the trick with that was that they varied quite a bit in, in look. Some of them were kind of 60s uh, French New Wave-ish uh, films uh, where the lighting was a little more naturalistic and others were more classic Hollywood studio films, and some were kind of American B-movies uh, of the 60s, which was trying to emulate studio films without the money. So they varied quite a bit in production value and, and lighting style. So my job was partly to figure out what in those movies 
on a light, whether it was just a mood or an actual specific camera angle or lighting element or color scheme. Her preference goes back earlier than the 60s, 70s films in terms of her lighting preferences. They tend to be more 40s, 50s oriented when it was all almost all hard lighting. Um, before the 40s, actually, lighting was on the softer side in the 30s. And in the, by the mid-60s, even Hollywood was incorporating softer lighting techniques. Uh, one of our key references for this film was uh, Marnie by Hitchcock and also The Birds, which are back-to-back -back films, the last two shot by Robert Burke's ASC. And there's a mix of hard and soft lighting in Marnie, mostly hard, but uh, you could see Hitchcock experimenting with softer lighting techniques that he would then employ in Torn Curtain right after that. And the more I sort of brought those things up to Anna, the more she preferred to go stick to a 50s style of lighting, something you'd see more in a Vincent Minnelli film or something harder. I think it's partly because there's two things that Anna cares the most about, which is color and glamour, making the actors look good. And to do that, you need a lot of frontal lighting. So for me, the challenge was mainly how do I front light a lot of things without the movie getting flat? And it's the same challenge that cinematographers had in the 50s and 40s, which involved a lot of cutters and flags to like feather the light at the top of the set walls, which they also did back then to hide the microphone booms because they used huge booms to, to mic these sets. So they had to shadow the top of the walls to keep the, the shadow from the microphone off. But it also lended some contrast to the image. You had the corners fall off, you had the top of the frame fall off. So there was some depth to the image. The other is to use backlights and edge lights and kickers and put accents in the set so that you have some range of contrast from black to white and in between. And if you get all that right, then the fact that there's frontal light on the actors and furniture and, and walls uh, doesn't look so uh, low contrast. Um, because Anna likes contrast, because contrast brings out color. Well, and it seems a little bit paradox. I'm thinking specifically, this is just what my mind jumps to, but like the Griff sequence, all the scenes in the police office, it's like, it's a wide aperture image. Things are in pretty stark relief, but there is a real grade and there's a real depth to it. And it's like, where do you locate verisimilitude with an image like that? Because technically, the lighting is a little bit improbable, right? There's, yeah. There's no natural source that's going to blow out everything like that. There's a little bit of natural uh, overhead fluorescent lighting that I had to use because uh, we had no sound stage. This was a location. But one of the aspects of shooting on very slow film stock, or we're using the slowest tungsten film Kodak makes, which is now 200 ASA. They unfortunately limited their 100 ASA film 10 years ago. So I rated the 200 speed film at 100 ASA, which to get a denser negative, which then would print to the higher printer lights and give me more contrast and saturation. But it also forced me to use quite a lot of lighting just to get a f2.8 on the lens. I had to get a 100 foot candles. It's sort of a standard formula that all cinematographers know that you need 100 foot candles to get an f2.8 at 100 ASA. From that, you can figure out any other ASA and combination. So I always knew I had to get a certain light level on every location or set to be able to shoot it at 2.8. And that would mean that the natural lighting in the police station was not going to be sufficient. But putting myself in the mindset of someone who went on to a police station location in the 60s, let's say, 100 ASA film came out in 68. So you look at like uh, 
TV cop movies of the 70s, for example. This is something they had to deal with all the time. And they would mix their small tungsten package in with the uh, natural lighting on location. You look at an episode of Columbo or something, you see this all the time. People seem to be in fluorescent lighting and they walk up into their close-up and they're suddenly in hard tungsten lighting. Um, so that was sort of my approach for the police scenes to kind of emulate those uh, police dramas of the time where the background kind of looked uh, more lit by the overhead lights and then the foreground was lit more Hollywood style with edge lights, backlights, and, and a strong key light. There's sort of an attitude back then in the, if you read the book uh, Five Seas of Cinematography or some of these other early textbooks, they often talk about their notion of realism is that men are lit in a manly style and, and women are lit in a feminine style and that's, that was considered being a realistic cinematographer back then, that you, you, uh, you treated the subject in a certain approach that, that, that matched their character. Um, it's sort of different than our notions of realism in cinematography today. So, so a film with an all-male cast would have a lot more edge lighting and key lights coming from the side, and, and so you were modeling the face to bring out their, their cheekbones, their, their roughness of their skin, their, uh, their sculptural qualities. Where with women, you're often bringing the lights around more frontal to flatter them uh, and glamorize them more. So that was sort of in my mind when I was lighting the police scenes to uh, keep the lights a little more to the side, use a little less fill, and just uh, make it a little edgier. I saw, I think it was like a message board, I saw you had posted something prior to shooting about the project. Probably it was cinematography.com. I think so. But you made mention of this impetus, and I can't tell if it's with this project or if this is sort of an ideal that you strive for in your other work. Basically shooting to print as much as possible. And that's very consistent with her approach, right? That this is, these are not images that are going to be color corrected in post. You know, 10 years ago when digital intermediates were the rage and shooting, but shooting on film, uh, the, the question early on in the early 2000s was, am I going to do a digital intermediate or am I going to go straight to print? And being on the low budget end of features, uh, it was always up in the air. So. Even in the 2000s, I always had to shoot film as if I was going to make an answer print and, and release that and not rely on any digital corrections. By the late 2000s, everything went to a digital intermediate and you can sort of incorporate some of those techniques into your shooting style. But I still tend to believe, even with shooting with digital cameras, that if you get it right in camera, you get the look down in camera, then the color correction will go faster, it'll look better. There's all sorts of advantages to, to getting the look right up front, not to mention the dailies will look good and, and that's what people will be looking at for months before they actually finish the film. So it's the kind of part of the old garbage in, garbage out rule, you know, it's, it's always better to bring in good footage and make it look better than to bring in bad footage and try to save it and make it look acceptable. So. I'm always shooting even with digital towards getting the exposures right and the colors right in camera as best I can. But incorporating, when it's more practical, a post-production technique. So when you're going to lose time on set trying to flag something in the background that you know you could easily darken in post, then you're just going to sort of leave that background thing just to move on, knowing that you're, you can easily fix that in post. So there's certain things today when shooting that you let go knowing that you, you know, it's, it's more practical to save it for color correction later. Maybe, for example, you light the background with an HMI for a moonlight effect and it's too blue, 
And in order to take the blue out, you have to lower the condors and put quarter O on all your HMIs and raise them up again, and it'll take 15 minutes. And you think, well, I could easily dial the blue down a little bit later in post, so I'm not going to spend 15 minutes trying to gel all my lights, if not longer than 15. Um, that's the sort of thing cinematographers today tend to think about, uh, knowing that everything is digitally color corrected. But when I started this film with Anna, the first thing I had to ask her was, are we going to finish digitally or are we going to finish on film uh, and then still have to make a digital master for home video and for DCP for theaters? And she was pretty adamant that we were going to uh, finish on film and show it in film if we can. And that made certain decisions for me. For example, we couldn't shoot three perf to save money because uh, we had to make an answer print and project it, so it had to be a four perf film. And I had to do everything in camera in terms of lighting and color and saturation. Uh, even though with the DCP version, I could, in theory, tweak it further, um, we, we didn't. The uh, home video and the DCP will, is more or less a straight transfer of the, of the printed image. So knowing that up front, it, it uh, was an interesting experiment because I haven't shot for print contact printing in, since the mid-2000s, so about a decade. And it was interesting to have that taken away from you, the, the tools of digital color correction, and not have that in your back pocket. So certain things that today you don't sweat, like when you switch between filters, let's say you do your wide shot on a light diffusion and a close-up on a heavier diffusion, usually the heavier diffusions have less contrast than the lighter diffusions. They wash out the image a little more. And in the old days, you used to spend a lot of time testing filters trying to get and lenses trying to get them all to match in contrast um, because you knew that any mismatch in black level was not fixable in a print. Uh, but today, we mix and match filters and lenses and zooms all the time because a minor shift in, in black level between one lens or another or, or a color shift is not a big deal to match in post-production. But now I had to get, as best I could, everything to match for printing. Now, it's not, it's not possible in some ways to be perfect about that. And in that aspect, I was relying on the fact these older movies had mismatched shots. You would see that you could tell when a movie switched from a prime to a zoom lens in an older film. You, you could tell when they switched filters. You can tell when the weather got overcast and they lost contrast. All these things that today we can get closer together and fix, these older movies tended to show those uh, problems more clearly. In an ideal scenario, would you be doing more productions like this? I'd love to do more art-oriented feature film projects. Right now I'm kind of alternating different types of things from television, pilots, features, uh, which I like. I like bouncing around. It's nice to have variety, but I would love to do more films that had an artistic uh, sensibility and design and very, this sort of visual uh, design aspect to them. It'd be great. And she was working on this film for many years, right? Because Viva got this theatrical release uh, a couple of years back, and I really wanted to interview her because I had been a fan for a long time. And then at the very end, she said, oh, I've already cast my next feature. We're going to start shooting hopefully in the next year or two. How long ago was that? That was probably like late 2014, maybe? We shot last year, 2015. 
She spent years uh, preparing for this film in terms of sewing costumes and building props that she needed, storyboarding the film out and kind of uh, like paint series of paintings and storyboards. So I wasn't involved that early on, but um, yeah, six months before we shot or if longer, she called me uh, asking me to do this uh, film. She had she'd interviewed a couple different cinematographers. Uh, not knowing if I was available, and uh, she was hesitant to go with anyone but me because she knew I sort of got her ideas about older movies. Uh, I think she felt the other cinematographers weren't as big a fan of old films, or they gave sort of lip service to doing in that style, but they weren't going to be as rigorous about sticking to that style. You look at a lot of movies that are sort of set in that period that are emulating older film styles and they do a kind of mishmash of modern and older styles. They sort of get the feeling of an old film with little touches of uh, backlight or a kicker now and then, but they more or less still stick to a modern sensibility. Uh, and she didn't want to do that. She wanted to be very rigorous about sticking to a old-fashioned studio style of lighting. So I had to in a sense, divorce myself from the thoughts of a modern cinematographer and put my brain in, in the mindset of someone working in the studio system in the 50s and 60s and how they would approach a scene and what they had to work with. So that we talked a lot about that and uh, I knew she would want to do this older fashioned approach and that's what I wanted to do because um, that was the challenging, that was the fun part essentially, to recreate this, this approach. Uh, I think to shoot it in a more modern style would be more typical, but it would have been less of a, an experiment in style. One of the other things, and she and I talked about this, so I've been kind of curious to get your thoughts on it, but as the film has been playing festivals and receiving pretty much unanimous critical acclaim, from what I can tell, some writers, some fans have talking about it in the context of kitsch, and she's sort of adamantly opposed to that. She doesn't consider it kitsch at all, right? So when you use the word rigorous, is there a certain self-consciousness that creeps in when you're emulating an older style but you don't want to make fun of it? Well, the style is clearly self-conscious. You don't accidentally shoot something in, in a retro style like this. So, but I don't see that as a negative aspect. I think any movie you do, modern or not, is a self-conscious act. Even if you are trying to create it in a naturalistic approach, you're going to take an attitude of what's what's the natural light in this room and how do I create it or how do I use it or, or anything. So it's all an act of, of thinking. Someone once said that uh, one generation's realism is, looks like artifice to the next generation and I tend to think that's true. Uh, all the attitudes today about what looks believable and looks real will look very dated probably in 20 years from now or 30 years from now. So I don't get too hung up on the notion of realism. I think of it more as uh, what is the scene need emotionally in terms of its look and, and is it honest to the emotions of the scene and honest to the location if that's part of the, the, the style of the film, but it's not about uh, realism from a kind of technical standpoint. So in terms of the kitsch aspect, I think it all depends on how much you respect these older films. If you love these older films and see them as serious works of art, like Vertigo, let's say, then there's nothing kitschy about Vertigo. Uh, even if you remade it today in exactly the same style, it would seem a little bit archaic or old-fashioned in a way, but that's not the same as kitsch. Kitsch implies a kind of 
humorous response to it. And I think there is some humor in The Love Witch. It's not a completely uh, humorless film, but the humor is, it's not meant to be a parody of an older film. It's just meant to incorporate the aesthetic values of older generation of filmmakers. Some of that is works symbolically with the themes of the film, you know, in terms of uh, the nature of uh, relationships and feminism and, and male attitudes towards women and, and the fact that it takes an older style makes you think about whether these attitudes have really changed or not. The problem is just more uh, aesthetic in terms of how to be consistent, uh, especially on a tight budget, and maintaining this look. Because it's, it's become way too easy to have one scene in its old-fashioned style and the next scene look completely modern because you had to go shoot in a location you couldn't light and had to use fast film and available light uh, or have a lot of modern elements in the frame that you couldn't control. So there's a, just a challenge in terms of visual consistency. And there's a bit of a challenge in terms of um, making things look good because I did one other film in a hard light style uh, which I won't name, but it was hard to make the film look good because when you shine a lot of light on everything, all the flaws in the wardrobe and the costuming, the, the sets uh, become more apparent. And so if the design of the film isn't thought out, it's going to become cluttered or garish looking very quickly. And you sort of see that in a way when you look at 70s television, which is sort of like 60s, 50s studio style applied on with half the budget and half the time, and so suddenly what looked very uh, glamorous in a in a kind of Paul Newman 60s film suddenly looks kind of cheap in a 70s cop show, and it's the same cinematographer often, um, uh, but it's the difference in in sort of production value uh, and time and and art direction and things. So I wanted to uh, avoid that feeling that uh, things were getting uh, cheap looking because I was shining so much light on it. But this is where, in this case, I was helped by the fact that Anna had sewed the costumes and painted the sets and designed the film so carefully. So what was in front of the camera could take all that lighting and hold up. Let's roll the clock back a little bit to when we were talking about CalArts and how you had not, in fact, set out to become a cinematographer. Once you began shooting other people's films, did you have VPs who you really admired, even wanted to emulate? Well, as a fan of cinematography, even at, when I was a beginning filmmaker, where I was directing and editing and shooting, uh, I tended to fall in love with a lot of different eras and, and styles. So I was never uh, very specific about, oh, this is just the one person I want to be like. It was more like uh, if I was shooting in the style of a, this type of film, I would like to be this DP. But if I was shooting in this other style, I'd like to be this other type of DP. Um, over the years, uh, there are certain cinematographers I find myself returning to stylistically in terms of inspiration. Uh, in film school, my, for a lot of people, it's, it's, I was in film school in the late 80s. Uh, Victoria Storaro was sort of the idol and still is one of my heroes. And, if you look at a lot of my early features and my shorts, there's very strong use of colored lighting, um, strong contrast, single source things, all the kind of hallmarks of Storaro's style. But mostly what I learned from Storaro was the ability to break down a script into color themes, like what is the emotional arc of the story and then how do I apply light and color to match that story arc. 
You know, do I move from, some stories are kind of an A to B journey. They start one look and they end at another look, both story-wise and then visually. And other films just hover in one single look throughout. And then other films are an A to B contrast. There's his world and there's her world. And it's about the conflict between those two looks. So you first have to understand the story before you can then break it down into color and light. And I learned that from Storaro more than anyone else. But I also love um, a lot of British cinematographers. I, I grew up watching a lot of films made in Britain for some reason. And I fell in love with Freddie Young and Freddie Francis and, and uh, David Watkin and then later Roger Deakins. Uh, so that the British were sort of the first to really do a lot of soft lighting in the 60s. You see that with Ozzy Morris's work uh, and Jeffrey Unsworth. I was a huge Jeffrey Unsworth fan. Um, Superman was probably one of the first films where I noticed the cinematography, partly because the film is dedicated to him. It's the first card that comes up because he'd passed away during post-production. And as a young person, seeing his name come up, I was wondering who this person was, so I, my first issue of American Cinematographer I bought was the Superman issue. And the issue was a dedication to him written by Peter McDonald, his camera operator. It, a very long article about his career and his work on Superman and, and Cabaret and, and a little bit of his other films. And so in a lot of ways he was the first cinematographer I studied. And his style is very much not like Storaro, it's not based on color symbolism and things. It was much more of a kind of impressionistic uh, studio style. It was like his work and Ozzy Morris's work were kind of the transition between sort of 50s studio technicolor style and 70s kind of naturalism. Uh, these, these cinematographers of the 60s, like Haskell Wexler, Conrad Hall, uh, Jeffrey Unsworth, Ozzy Morris, you saw this interesting crossover happening you know, partly because film stocks and lenses and other things allowed them to incorporate more natural light, but also there was an aesthetic change going on. But they had such a grounding in studio style filming with hard light that it never really left them. You look at some of Conrad Hall's last films, like uh, Road to Perdition, and there's a lot of wonderful use of hard light, you know, just spotlights on pieces of furniture or a rake of hard light on, on someone's face that's not necessarily motivated by some uh, natural source, or it, it's sort of pseudo-motivated, but it's there mostly for its effect on the, the dramatic quality of the image. And that's what I loved about uh, Jeffrey Unsworth's work. It was kind of romantic and soft, and occasionally very soft lighting, and then it would get very hard and dramatic and, and very glossy and studio-ish at other times. And it was all heavily fog-filtered, which was kind of an interesting uh, 70s look which I find fascinating because he shot 2001, which is extremely clean and sharp, not at all like his, his normal style, so, which shows you that, well, how a director will affect the look of a film, I guess. And uh, have you ever flirted, I mean, as a cinematographer, signature style, it seems like sort of a blessing and a curse because we've been talking about it. It varies according to the prerogatives of the script, right? Uh, how do you stay flexible? How do you stay open? If there's any course correction yeah, I in think, the life um, of a cinematographer. I think all cinematographers, uh, by being artists, uh, correct themselves over time. They look at their own work or they think about what they did. And, you know, just daily when you go home from shooting, you're driving back and you think, God, I, what, what did I do wrong in that scene? Oh, I could have hidden the light behind that lampshade if I'd been not so tired. And I could have not had such a flat 
the key on that actor who was 20 feet from camera or whatever. You, you find solutions after the fact sometimes when you're driving home. So you're always analyzing your own work and what you could have done better. And also then the stylistic things like, let's say you tend to love really strong backlight and then you start to go like, am I overdoing it or am I uh, doing it just a, right a number of times? Is it, am I satisfying my own aesthetic curiosity at the expense of the project or the director's tastes? Uh, you question yourself, at least I question myself all the time about those things. But uh, correction-wise, it, it tends to be more like little tweaks. You, after a project's over, you go like, if I ever did that project again or something similar to that, I would like to do something a slightly different approach or, or, or adjust it or something because um, this certain element drifted away uh, a little bit uh, from what I imagined. Or maybe often it's just simply, uh, I didn't go far enough, you know, I was too conservative in my approach. I think in general, modern cinematography should, or in general cinematography is always in support of the story and should not call attention to itself too much unless the story is about the visuals. But in general it's more about the performances and the story and the cinematography has to support that. So often you're asking yourself, am I standing out too much in front of the, of the picture or am I in the background? And I think you change over time, over shooting the course of a decade or two decades, you change with the times to some degree and in some ways you, you work against the times. You, you see trends happening and you just have to decide, am I going to join that trend or am I going to uh, avoid that trend because it doesn't really match my aesthetics. And then you start to worry, am I falling out of sync with the times? Am I getting to be old-fashioned about things? You don't want to uh, be a, um, unopen to new ideas. That's one of the things I liked about going to CalArts was that I came from such an old-fashioned film history background. I'd studied film on my own for a decade before I even went to film school. And then I pick a film school that's especially oriented towards experimental film and not classical Hollywood style. And at times, at early on at CalArts, I felt like, oh, I, I'm in the wrong film school. I'm surrounded by a bunch of video, experimental video artists who, who talk about Bill Viola when I want to talk about Kurosawa and Hitchcock. And I'm sure Anna probably felt the same way at CalArts and sometimes. But what was great about CalArts was that being so experimental, it forced you to question everything in terms of your own tastes, but also be open to alternative ways of making films. Uh, that there wasn't one right way to make a film, that classic Hollywood technique had its advantages and its disadvantages. And even today, I'm much more open to quite a variety of cinematography styles. Often the discussions on the internet, people will denigrate some film that they felt was like too underexposed or the blacks weren't black or, or it was uh, too grainy. And I'm like, well, if it fits aesthetically with the story, it's kind of interesting how this doesn't look like a typical movie. The fact that it's, that it's uh, non-realistic in its use of color, for example. Clearly it's a deliberate choice. The fact that it doesn't match um, everyone's general opinions about what movies should look like isn't necessarily a negative thing. You know, and I think I learned that from being at CalArts, that, that it's um, okay to be different in a sense. Uh, but there are certain you know, trends that occasionally happen that you do feel are uh, fads that don't necessarily support the, the narrative element, there, or they're just overused to the point where it's becoming cliches, you know.
um, natural light is so easy to capture with modern digital cameras that I see so many reels that have a beautiful use of natural light, but it gets to the point where you see the same images over and over and over again, and you start to go like, well, if these certain images, they become so commonplace that they have no emotional impact anymore, then we have to start looking for new images just to have an effect on the audience in some way. So you can overuse, even a good thing can get overused to the point where it loses its value, at least for a while until it dies off and then it can be new again. That was David Mullen, ASC, talking about his work on Anna Biller's The Love Witch. Mr. Mullen also wrote a companion piece outlining his technical approach, which you can find on this podcast page, along with more podcasts and articles at theasc.com. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.